Now, I, I got to tell you that uh, as far as the title is concerned, the sufficiency of grace, I love, I love the title, the sufficiency of grace. But when, but when you break down the word sufficiency, the word itself is not sufficient enough, play on words, is not sufficient enough to describe the wonder of grace. I mean, grace is so, imagine, uh, so amazing. We could sing about the amazing grace. We could, we could sing, your grace is more than enough. But really, when, when, when it comes to songs and, and preaching and, and words, nothing is sufficient except to experience the grace of God. That's transformational. The, the grace of God has, has, has so impacted many of our lives here this morning that, that we are becoming trophies of God's grace. And, and I'm going to get to that by the end of this message this morning. But I want to share with you, I, I was watching uh, Fox and Friends uh, this week, and uh, their guest was uh, a gentleman who uh, was talking about how the brain processes thought. And he had a couple of examples of, of how the brain processes thought with a couple of brain t- uh, teasers, right? And one of them I found really fascinating, you know, brain te- my wife is all into brain teasers. As, as a math teacher, she was constantly, and the kids were loving the brain teasers that she would give them in class because it challenged, it challenged them to think outside the box, uh, to, to think in, in, the, in terms of math outside the box. But anyway, uh, my wife's been teasing me for the last 40-something years, but she doesn't tease my brain, she, she, she teases my eyes. I just love you, baby. It's so yummy. <laughs> she is. I mean, we'll be married 44, 44 years this September. That's amazing, right? So, so, so anyway, uh, so, so the guest, right, is, is giving them uh, a, uh, a challenge. Here's a scenario. Try to imagine three doors, right? You're in a room, and you must escape the room. You will die if you do not get out of this room. So there are three choices, three doors from which to choose, right? The first door has a room full of assassins who will kill anything and anyone that comes through that door. A room full of assassins, room number one. A room number two is a room full of lions who haven't eaten in three months. Lions, right? Room number three is a room that is... That is an inferno, blazing inferno. It's, 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 it's all on fire. So, so if you know Elizabeth Hasselbeck, Hasselbeck is that how you know? Elizabeth Hasselbeck, she, she, she chose room number one with all the assassins, believing that her charm and her you know, cuteness and, and her personality can, can, can uh, overpower or just, just win the hearts of the assassins, right? And uh, Steve Ducey, you know Steve Ducey on that show? Steve Ducey says, I'll take my chances in room number three, you know. Uh, I'll take my chances in that blazing inferno, right? And so the, uh, the guest said, you're both dead. Uh, the only logical choice, the only reasonable choice, and this is where he was talking about how the brain processes thought, the only logical thought is to go through the middle door with the lions. Because the lions who haven't eaten in three months are dead, And so the way to escape, listen, when it comes to grace, when it comes to grace, choosing choosing the right door through which to enter is a matter of life and death. Just that important. Now, I want you to think about that. Three crosses, right? On on the, the infamous hill called Golgotha or Calvary, there were three crosses. Only one cross leads to life. 
And I want to talk to you about three doors and, 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 and really three choices for us when it comes to walking through the door of grace. We, we, we can, just, just as there, there were two thieves crucified, one on the left and one on the right side of, of Jesus. So, so likewise, when it comes to preaching the gospel of grace, there are two thieves on either side of the gospel of grace. The first is called lasciviousness which is a fancy word for simply saying it's a license to sin. That, that is one attitude with which one door through which many people go when it comes to dealing with the gospel of grace, right? And the other door on the opposite end of that is, is legalism. And those who enter into that door of legalism, you know, again, I, w- I want to stress that the choices that we make, you know, uh, must be, a matter of either life or death. And I want you to think about this this morning. What is lasciviousness? Lasciviousness is the attitude that because I am forgiven, because grace is free, therefore I could live any way I want to. I'm no longer bound to to keep the law because, because I am not saved by the observance of the law. Therefore I could live basically any way that I want to. On the opposite side of the senator of grace is legalism, human effort, human ability, human achievement, human accomplishment, the, the ability to, to, to live now because of grace, to, to live uh, in a way that is winning the favor of God and winning the indebtedness of God. And whenever, whenever the gospel of grace is preached, people either get excited on the one hand and uh, joyous, or, or they get, on the other hand, they get nervous and kind of anxious. And one of the reasons for that being is the way in which we respond to the way in which we, we react to this issue of grace. And so those that are on the side of lasciviousness or the, on the side of the license to sin, basically, you know, we, we hear this argument in the book of Romans. If, if, the grace of God superabounds wherever there is sin. The grace of God does all the more abound. Then, then why not continue in sin so that grace may abound? And Paul answers that attitude by saying, God forbid that we who have been set free from sin should no longer be brought underneath his power. Grace, they say, sets us free so that we can basically live the way we want to because after all, if, if there's nothing that I can do to win God's approval, then there's certainly nothing I can do to win God's disapproval. And that's the logic in which they, they choose. But, but to sow to that flesh, and that's what it is, it's to reap corruption. It's just as deadly as a room full of assassins. Choose the opposite door and you'll find the thief called legalism. Legalism thinks that grace is, is basically in, inadequate in and of itself and that there's, there's help that's required to add to the sufficiency of the cross. And so by my achievements and by my good works and by my good deeds, I am assuring that I will have eternal life by by an observance of rules and regulations. Usually those rules and regulations have nothing to do with Scripture. You know, uh, they're man-made and, and uh, they are an attempt to win 
the favor of God. The thief of lasciviousness robs grace of its purity and its holiness. And the thief of legalism robs grace of its joy and its blessedness. Here's a statement I want to share with you. One says that we are free to do anything we want. And the other says that we are obligated to do everything that we can. Do you see both extremes? And both distort the message of grace. Both are misinterpretations of truth. You know, the Apostle John was very emphatic in the first chapter of his gospel to, to, to let us know that th- th- there, are, there are more than one choices. The, the, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And we have all received of his grace. John says, as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Christ, we have received of his grace, grace heaped upon grace. And the fact of the matter is, is that we are debtors. Those of us who've gone through the door of grace are debtors to the grace of God. That it is, it is not only unmerited and, and, and undeserved, it is ill-deserved. It is the very opposite of what we deserve. So I want to pose a, a number of questions to you to see which of the two doors on either left or right that you may gravitate toward, maybe even unconsciously, okay? So, so here, here's a series of, of questions. If when you sin, you run away from God rather than run to him, you have not understood the grace of God. If when you consider your worth and your value, you first think about your personal accomplishments rather than the personal accomplishments of Christ, you have not fully comprehended the grace of God. If you tend to think, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, rather than I'm accepted, therefore I obey, you have not chosen the right door, the door mocked grace. If you're motivated to serve God because of fear and insecurity rather than because of joy and confidence, you fail to grasp the grace of God. If your confidence is in religious activity, going to church, reading the Bible, doing devotionals, any of those things, rather than who Jesus Christ is and what he has achieved, then you've misunderstood the grace of God. If you feel like you've reached the level of maturity and you're able to do what others cannot and you, and you secretly praise yourself for that, you've not understood the grace of God. And if when you stumble and fall, you suppose that God is angry with you and has withdrawn his love from you, then you have not understood the grace of God. If you think that God doesn't love and cherish you because of your past is so dark that even Jesus couldn't forgive you, then you do not know the grace of God. Grace, by definition, is free and unconstrained. It's God's goodness towards sinners who have no claim or no right to mercy. See, there's no such thing as I have a right to. I'm entitled to God's mercy. No, no, no. God shows mercy upon whom he will show mercy. We are all without one lick of good. We sang about that a little while ago. There's nothing good in me. There's no goodness in us apart from Jesus Christ himself. Man is not simply, simply helpless. He's without hope and without God in this world apart from Christ. You see, we're not just not deserving. We are openly hostile and, and openly, vehemently opposed to God. We, we, before conversion takes place, we become God-haters or have become God-haters. 
Grace is the, uh, only amazing when we understand just how fallen we are. When we, when we understand the depravity of grace. And one of the reasons why in our culture and in our, and in our society today, and, and I'm talking about all the societies of this world, grace is, so, is, so, is not as esteemed as it ought to be is because we don't understand the depravity of the human heart. So I want you to know this, that the biblical response to grace received is faith to receive more grace. The biblical response to grace received is grace to receive more or faith to receive more grace. I want us to look at an amazing portion of scripture this morning found in the book of Acts. I want to just kind of set this up for a minute. You know, all of the stuff that's happening right now with the rockets and the, and the, and the missiles that are flying from, from Palestine into Israel and Jerusalem and, and all of the fighting that's taking place. I want you to imagine for a minute, you know, if, if CNN and NBC and, and Fox News and all of the networks, really, I, this would be an image that would be captured in, in every media outlet around the entire world, right? If we could just imagine for a minute, imagine Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, right, kneeling down with the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran. Imagine them, if, they, if you would, if, the, if they're kneeling and embracing and hugging and weeping, in, in, in such a way of expressing love toward each other, right? Could, could you imagine the image that that would be around the world, the, the, the shock of it, you know? And, and, and the likelihood of that, you know, we, we, we seriously doubt the likelihood of that. But that's exactly, that's exactly the image that was found in the first century in, in, a, in, a, in a place called Ephesus where, where the Bible talks about this man who was formerly a Pharisee, who was, who was a hater of Gentiles, and Gentiles who hated the Jews were, were, were doing exactly that, kneeling and praying and weeping and hugging and embracing one another as, as they were saying goodbye to this man called the Apostle Paul. So I, I want to just kind of go backwards a little bit from Acts chapter 20, look at the conclusion, and then, and then see why... This image is so significant based upon what Paul has said to them in this particular portion of Scripture about grace, okay, and the sufficiency of grace. So Acts chapter 20, verse 26, I'm sorry, 36 says this. When he, Paul, had said this, he knelt down with all of them, the elders, and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that, they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And that's where, where Paul departed, right? So here's the picture. They're, they're embracing, they're, they're weeping, they're, they're hugging, they're praying with one another, and they're parting under sorrowful conditions, right? But this is what Paul said to them that brought them to this place of weeping and hugging and embracing, right? Acts chapter 20, verse 22 says this. Paul is telling them about what he's going to expect in his future. He says, now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what was about to happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. This is an amazing portion of Scripture for so many reasons, but, but, but for the way in which Paul 
regards the fact that his life now is going to be in a tailspin of greater difficulty than he's known, of greater hardship than he's known before. But I love this next verse. In fact, I love it in the original, well, not the original, but, but the, one of the older translations. Let me read it first in verse 24. It says, however, I consider not my life worth, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task of the Lord Jesus has given me. Let me just stop here a minute. I, I love the older translation where it says, neither count I my life dear to me. One of the greatest deliverances that we have, one of the greatest experiences that we can have because of the grace of God, is to come to that place in our life where we're no longer selfish, where we're no longer self-centered, where, where Paul could say, I don't count my life dear to myself. That's the problem with, you know, this world, is that we prefer ourselves, we think of ourselves first and above everything else. But Paul has come to the place of grace in his life where he's not thinking about his life at all, but his task. And his task, he says, is to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Grace had saved him and grace was motivating him and compelling him to share that gospel message of grace, even though it was going to cost him his life. It didn't matter to him. And so in light of that, now Paul turns to the Ephesians themselves and he says, I, I know what's going to happen to you. I know what's going to happen to me. Hardship is going to await me. Prison is going to await me. But I also know what's going to happen to you. And so let, let, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas. First and foremost, you, you guard your own hearts and you shepherd the people of God. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Those that would deny the, the deity of Christ, they would have a hard time explaining that verse. Be shepherds of the flock of God, which he has purchased in his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock of God. And then Paul went on to warn them that even from among their own selves will arise teachers who will draw away disciples unto themselves. And so in light of this, in, in light of the danger that they were facing, what, 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 what would you say? If you were Paul, what would you say to them to encourage their hearts? If you were going to part, you were going to leave them, you were no longer going to be able to, you know, send them emails or, or communicate or Facebook or FaceTime. With, if, you, if you no longer had input into what would be the last thing that you could say to a group of people that you loved and you poured your life into, this is what Paul says. He says, I commit you. I commend you to God. I'm placing you in God's hands. That's secure. That's None can pluck you out of his hand. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There are two marvelous things that come out in that word, the word of his grace. There are two things I want to just zero in on before we conclude this message this morning. N number one, I want to go backwards again. Sanctification, the word, the word, Sanctified means to be set apart, to, to be made holy, to, 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 have, to have the grace of God so operative in your life that, that you are changed, transformed into what you once were, into what you are becoming in the image of Christ. That you are being 
modified and transformed into the same image of the Son of God. And, and the other is the inheritance. And so, so first, let me, let me talk to you about this whole issue about sanctification. See, the grace of God is more than forgiveness. And, and you know what? I've got to parse my words when I say that because forgiveness is amazing. Forgiveness is wonderful. And I don't want to minimize that whatsoever. But the grace of God is also the power of God for us to resist temptation and to overcome sin. For Jesus did not simply die to remove the penalty of sin. He died to remove the power of sin and the pleasure of sin from our lives. See, the grace of God does more than remove our guilt. Listen, it is the power of God that removes our guile. It removes the deceivableness of our hearts. It it removes those areas of our life that are displeasing to God. That's what the grace of God can do. I love Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared to teach us. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. To say no to temptation. To say no to sin. The grace of God does that for us in a powerful way. The grace of God is profound ability to set us apart, to have lives that are pleasing to God, not in our human strength, but by the grace of God. Everything comes then to God's enabling power for us to live a life that is pleasing to him. One of the tragic tendencies of, of those that profess to be followers of Christ is that they they, they enter into this place where they receive the forgiveness of sins. And then from that point on, from, from that point on, then they try in their own accomplishments to win God's favor or to, or to cause God to become indebted to them by their, by their service or by their deeds or by their acts. And so the remainder of their walk is based upon their goodness and their good intentions rather than the finished work of Christ, that by grace and grace Alone are we saved through faith that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. In the previous series, in the series that we preached, I guess maybe last time or the time before that, I can't remember right now, my soul to keep. I kept stressing each week that Jesus is able to keep us from falling. Only Jesus is able to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. That only Jesus can complete the good work that he has begun in us, that he is able to save unto the uttermost. Everyone that comes unto God by him. So, let me share with you. Several weeks ago, uh, I received a, um, a surprise in the mail. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it's called a notice of liability. I have, a, I have a picture of it here. Yeah, it's from the red light safety program. However, I don't think they're really interested in my safety. I think they're interested in the $80 that I have to fork over because they apparently got me going through a red light. Now, I didn't blow a red light. I didn't run through a red light. I made a right turn on red where there's a sign that says no right turn on red, right? And, and, and here's the thing. They got a, a blow-up picture on my left of my license plate. So they're saying, we, we got you. You know, we, we know it's you, you know. Now, they don't know who's driving. It could have been my wife, right? It was me. All right. So, 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 so in the second picture, they, they got the light red, and then they got me gone, right? 
the, the light is red, be gone. And they, they also give you a video link to show you in, in uh, what would you call that, live motion? Or not live motion, but, but in lifetime, right? It was a half a second. Now, I got to tell you, when I learned how to drive, they taught me, they taught me when the light turns yellow, you go faster. <laughs> Rumor has it that you're supposed to stop. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. But see, I'm old enough. I'm old enough. Some of you, some of you folks that are, you know, my age and maybe a little bit older, do you guys remember that when they had traffic lights, they didn't have them hanging over the road like on, on wires. They had them on poles in the street. And they didn't have red, yellow, and white. They just had red and, ye- red and green, right? Isn't that right? I mean, and then all of a sudden they add yellow. Like, you know, yellow's a great color, right? <laughs> you know? So, 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 so listen, I'm guilty, right? Half a second. And that's what the law does. By the law, the Bible says, is the knowledge of sin. Law can only do one thing. It convicts and it condemns. And so I got convicted, and I got condemned. And I sent my 80 bucks in. Here's the good thing, the, the good thing about, see, and, and here's the thing about this program. It's an, outside, it's an outside company of the state of New York, right, who shares the profits with New York State. They get a piece of the action. So New York is happy to provide these cameras in different locations. So just be careful. Just be careful. Because the law convicts and the law condemns. And the reason why I share that is because I want to I I give you an illustration of grace. I've shared this probably about four times over the last you know, number of years. And, and, and those of you who know where I'm going, you know, please... Just bear with me for a minute. There's some that have never heard this illustration before. But, but, but for me, while it's not a perfect illustration, for me, it is a constant reminder every time I get behind the wheel of a car. See, I started driving in 1964. I started driving before they had mandatory seatbelts in cars. We didn't have seatbelts in, in cars at a particular point in time. In fact, it wasn't until 1968 that it became mandatory that cars would provide seatbelts and you'd have to wear a seatbelt. I wasn't used to that. You know, like the yellow light, I wasn't used to that. I, was, I wasn't used to wearing seatbelts, you know. It's not that I wanted to be arrogant or be, you know, you know uh, tempting faith or whatever, you know. It's just, it's just, it, it, it never grabbed me, right? Uh, the, you, you remember the campaign? You remember the, 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 the seatbelt campaign? Buckle up for safety. Buckle up. Buckle up for safety. Always buckle up. Never impressed me, you know? I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, it, it, it didn't bother me. My kids, however, who were born in the 70s, right, and who were raised with seatbelts, right, they would tell me all the time, Dad, put on your seatbelt. I'd say, shut up. I'm the father. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The, the other day, just, just to talk about Lauren Grace, the other day we were uh, having uh, dinner in our backyard, and uh, the kids were in the pool, and uh, Will's uh, little guy, Quinn, was six years old, right? Six years old? Uh, he, he gets out of the pool, and he's like this. He's shivering, right? And he's stuffing cookies in his mouth like this. 
right? And, and some of the cookies are falling on the floor. And, and Will says, Quinn, you had enough. No more cookies, you know? And he says, why? You know what he's putting in, put, put, put in his mouth, you know? And, 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 and all of a sudden, I, I could swear, I could swear that the Terminator came in the backyard. Because I heard Will say, step away from the cookie. You know, really. You know, and, then, and I looked at him like I was frightened. You know, I said, whoa. And, and he, says, he says, I'm the law. And my wife is grace. Good cop, bad cop. Now, I got, I got to tell you what happened to me, all right? So here I am, right? So this is 16 years ago, 16 years ago. I am driving down the road, and there are two police cars stopped on either side of the road, and officers standing in the middle of the street, and they are stopping cars, looking at things like inspection stickers, registrations, and if you're wearing seatbelts. And here I come. I'm as guilty as I don't wear seatbelts. I mean, I'm dead to rights, right? And on the other side of the street, there, a cop car is riding. I see him writing a citation. I see him writing a ticket. And, and to me, it was a female police officer, and she looked at me. I looked at her. I had guilt all, all over my face. I thought, you know, like that. And she, and she motioned to me, put on your seatbelt and keep on going. Like a block later, I'm looking in my rearview mirror. I can't, I can't believe what just happened. Instead of, instead, of, instead of finding me guilty, she let me go. And I got to tell you something. I had my seatbelt on at that moment, right? Because she told me to put it on. At that moment, you know, the Holy Spirit began to just make real spiritual truth out of, out of you know, the natural thing that was taking place there. That, that this was... For some reason that was known to her only, you know, I may have been the only person that day that she showed any mercy to or any compassion or any grace to at all. And, and the Holy Spirit just, wow. It's like, that's, that's a picture of grace. And I gotta tell you something. That's 16 years ago. I have never, I have never gotten behind the wheel of a car since that day without putting my seatbelt on. Not because, not, not because it's the law and not because I'm afraid of getting a fine. It's because of the reminder of grace. Every, every time, I don't have to wait for that, you know, whenever I'm driving with Joey in the front of the car, the, the, the buzzer has to start beeping before he'll put on the seatbelt. Not me. As soon as I'm in the car, just is saying, yeah, that's right. As soon as, I, as soon as I, I'm in the car, I, I'll put that seatbelt on. Because for me, it's a reminder of grace. Even if I've got to move my car in the parking lot from one parking space to another, it's because of the profound effect that that act of kindness had on me. And you see, this is what I want you to know, that the grace of God has far greater power to, to change us and to transform us than the law does. The law can only convict and the law can only condemn, but the grace of God has the ability to empower us to live in such a way that we can be pleasing unto God. Now, I gotta tell you something. 
There is an amazing difference, though, with this illustration. This is why this illustration is imperfect. She, she gave me a wink and a nod, and she moved me on. But God didn't give me a wink and a nod to provide grace for me. God sent his son. Somebody paid the penalty. Somebody paid the price. Somebody, God himself, suffered and died in my place so that I could obtain the mercy and the grace and the kindness that is revealed in the cross. You see, the amazing thing is that God is just and he's the justifier of those that believe. Grace does not reign at the expense of, of justice. No, justice and mercy, and w- which are two irreconcilable things. You cannot have justice and mercy at the same time, but God found a way. God found a way so that mercy and justice could kiss in the cross. And Jesus has accomplished that in himself. I, I got to tell you a story. Uh, I came across this. It's an ancient story, whether it's, whether, whether it's uh, 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 an urban legend or not, I, I don't know. But, 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 but here's, here's an Asian father, an Asian family. And, and the son in this family uh, took up with the wrong group. He, he took up with, with, with gang members. And the gang members persuaded this young man to... to help them break into his father's own treasure house. And, and when the deed was done, they fled. They left him kind of holding the bag, if you will. They, they left him to, to, to accept the guilt and the blame for what had happened while, while they abandoned him. And, and, and meanwhile, he, he had betrayed his father's trust. And at this particular point, he was absolutely broken and absolutely uh, dismayed by his own behavior. But the greatest crime of all, the greatest crime of all was that he publicly dishonored the name of his family and his father in a culture that esteems the, the, the ancestors to the point of reverence and, and has such a high stake of integrity in a family's name. So broken, broken deeply, repentant, he went to his father and he begged his father for forgiveness. And his father accepted him and, and had a big banquet. And when all of his family and all of his guests were, were come to the banquet, and after they had feasted up to the full, the father stood up and he raised his cup of rice wine in a toast. And when the son drank of that toast, he grabbed his throat and fell upon the table, dead, having been poisoned by his father. And at that moment, he nodded to his guests with a respectful achievement of having regained his honor and his guests nodded in return and bowed in return that he had now regained the family respect of everyone there and they silently left the banquet hall. What a contrast, what, what, what a difference in the story of the prodigal father of, or the prodigal son, whichever way you want to interpret that who receives his son, who falls on his neck and who weeps and who hugs his son. And this father here, what what a difference between this father and our heavenly father. You see, there's no love here. There's There's only the achievement of honor. But God has accomplished 
both honor and glory in the cross and the demonstration of his love. Hereby is the way that we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. See this incredible love? It moves us more than emotionally. It it moves us transformationally. It, It can change us from what we once were to what we are becoming. This is how grace energizes us to resist the flesh and to, and to savor the Savior. The biblical response, once again, is grace received, is faith to receive yet more grace. I love the redundancy of free grace. Grace is free, but to say free grace is, is a blessed redundance. Lastly, and I'll be closing with this, the last thing that Paul said was that the, gra- the word of his grace is able to build us up and give us an inheritance that is in Christ. I want to talk to you just for a few more minutes before we close about this inheritance that we receive as a result of grace. But I need to look at another verse of scripture that elaborates on this, where, where Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. He expands upon that. He first mentions it in verse 6, and then in verse 8 and 9, he expands upon what that looks like. But verse 7 is the key. Verse 7 is the key. It is a so that moment. I, I love Paul's so that moments. When it comes to that, so that. I mean, this is the reason. Listen to what he says. Basically, he says that God made us alive together with Christ so that in the ages coming or the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you've ever wondered what God is up to, if you ever wondered what is God going to do, What is our destiny going to look like? This is it. So that in the ages to come, the reason why God has saved sinners is for this reason, that we might become, I mentioned it in the beginning, we might become the trophies of and the display of his amazing, wonderful grace for all the universe to see. The kindness of God that is on display. And Paul uses the, the, the word ages in, in the plural that is in age after age after age like the, like the waves of the sea, you know, hitting against the shore. After age after age of century, and se- if you can't even use the word century, but age after age, without ceasing, there will be ever increasing measures of the revelation of the immeasurable, limitless grace of God. See, the grace of God is not just, it's not just you know, a one-time experience, but in the ages to come. You know, Frank and I, we greeted each other this morning, and, 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 and Frank said, what, what's new? I said, nothing much. I said, what's new with you? I had nothing much. When we see each other in heaven, if we haven't seen each other for a long time, th- there's no way that we can respond when, when you say, hey, what's new with you? I'm nothing much. There will be no such thing as same old, same old. It will be ever increasing, ever getting better. We will be falling more in love with God, knowing God more and more for the endless ages. The grace of God. See, this is our inheritance. What the grace of God can give to us. See, the grace of God exceeds our calculation. That's why I said the sufficiency of grace is insufficient to express the wonder and the splendor and the majesty of all that God has in store for us. We are being 
not only made free from the power of sin and death, but there is a quality of eternal life that is coming to us that can only be expressed in this grace. Constantly being more and more amazed by the grace of God. That's what's in store for us. That's what's in store for you. If you're in Christ, to be more and more amazed in the ages to come, God's kindness, his goodness, his compassion. Now, the Bible says, his compassions are new every morning. What will it be like when there will be no morning? When there will just be eternity? The measure of his compassions is beyond calculation. So once again, here's what I want you to leave with this morning. that The biblical response to grace received is faith to receive yet more. See, I don't, want you to, I don't want you to merely know about the grace of God. I don't want you to merely contemplate the grace of God. I want you to experience the grace of God. I want you to experience the transforming power of grace. Just like me, 16 years ago, it changed my life as far as seatbelts are concerned. I don't get behind the wheel of a car without putting my seatbelt on because it's a reminder of grace. To me, it's not about the seatbelt. It's not about the law. It's about God, what he, the favor he had showed me. I cannot, I cannot ignore that. It's a reminder. And I pray, my prayer for you this morning is that in the beginning of this message and through this series, that we will be so, so impacted by the grace of God that we will never, every, every moment by moment, every day we wake up, we will remember, it's not my achievements, it's not on the basis of my, my good deeds or my good works, but, but, but neither is it a license for me to sin or a license for me to take for granted that Jesus paid the ultimate price for my deliverance, that he has delivered me not only from the power of sin and from the, from the very pleasure of sin, but he's also delivered me from its penalty. And so to live for Christ is to enjoy the grace of God. It's to know the grace of God. It's to experience the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning as we begin the series. I pray that you take us deeper into the knowledge of your grace. That you would take us more experientially to know that we would know that we would know that by grace have we been saved and transformed and changed by your power, you are conforming us to the image of the Son of God. And that is beyond what anybody could have ever expected in the Old Testament. Truly, the law came by Moses, which brings conviction, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, both grace and truth. I pray this morning, Father, if there's anyone here right now who is not in a relationship with you, is not in a right relationship with you, maybe, maybe they went through either one of those two doors, you know, of, of either lasciviousness or legalism. Maybe they haven't fully comprehended the, the grace of God as, as what we're talking about today, that we can stand in the righteousness of Christ, not having been found in our own righteousness, which is according to the law, but in the righteousness which is by the faith of the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. I pray today, Father, that before they would leave this place today, that they would be in a right relationship with you. 
Would you do that now, Lord God, in each and every single one of us? Would you give us a greater understanding, a greater experience of the grace of God? 